welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to Proper Mental, episode 161, and my guest this week is Adam Bloom, who is a multi-award-winning stand-up comedian and writer. So as well as writing and performing his own stand-up, Adam is also a ghostwriter for other people, and he's written for more than 50 other comedians. And Adam also has a diagnosis of bipolar, and that's kind of what we talk about in this episode. We talk about his experiences with hypomania which is like the less extreme part of bipolar. Often when we talk about bipolar, we're used to people talking about mania and even hypomania, but not so much hypomania, which is how it manifests for Adam. And I actually heard Adam talking about this on Rich Wilson's excellent Insane in the Membrane podcast. And in his chat with Rich, he just kind of mentions it. They're talking about something else. And as part of that conversation, he briefly touches on hypomania and bipolar. And my rather opportunist ears kind of pricked up at that because it's not something that's come up on the show before. I've had many guests who have experiences with bipolar but I've never heard anyone talk about hypomania so that was really interesting to me but also from a personal point of view I've never had an official diagnosis with all my mental health stuff it's never been something I felt the need to kind of pursue but it has been suggested to me by a few people some of whom actually know what they're talking about that I might have bipolar but it's never really felt quite right for me particularly when people talk about being manic I've never felt manic enough although I do have periods of being very upregulated but when I heard Adam on Rich Wilson's podcast a lot of what he was saying kind of hit home you know it ticked a lot of boxes for me so one of the beautiful things about having a mental health podcast is you can learn more about different types of mental health and mental illness by just sending people messages and asking them to chat about it. So that's kind of what I did with Adam in this case. And it's really cool because although he mentioned it on Rich Wilson's podcast, it's the first time he's kind of talked about it publicly really. So I've got a bit of an exclusive here. So we talk about all that. We talk about him getting into comedy and the art of writing funny stuff and trying to make people laugh. We talk about the mental impact of becoming successful at a young age. And we talk about things like stress and anger and medication and all sorts of stuff. And Adam is often described as the comedian's comedian. He's very well thought of and respected in the industry. And we talk a bit about that. And we also talk about success and more specifically how Adam measures success. And that was a really fascinating part of the conversation. Adam has done a lot of things in comedy that are very sort of stereotypically thought of as being successful. He's done Edinburgh, he's been on the telly, he's done the panel shows, he's won awards, all of that stuff. But also as a ghostwriter, he's much more behind the scenes. He's writing for other people and he doesn't get the credit for the jokes. So it was really cool to hear him chat about the differences between those different types of success and what that means to him, how he measures it for himself. That was really interesting. And we also talk about his book. It's called Finding Your Comic Genius, An In-Depth Guide to the Art of Stand-Up. It's out now. I actually read it in preparation for this episode and it's brilliant. Obviously, I wasn't coming at it from the point of view of being a comedian or wanting to be one. But obviously, because of this podcast, I do do a bit of public speaking and I want the speaking that I do to be structured well and for it to be entertaining and to have certain parts of the conversation really hit home. So I'm always looking for things that are going to help me with that. And I got loads from Adam's book. And I think if you've got any sort of interest in comedy at all, it's well worth a read. It's that whole thing of working really hard to make something sound like you haven't worked very hard on it. You know, the mechanics of putting comedy together is just fascinating to me. So I really enjoyed the book. You can get that on Amazon. And I really enjoyed chatting to Adam about it. There's links to all his stuff in the episode notes if you want to find out more about him. If you'd like to watch our conversation, that's available now on the Patreon page. There's also a link in the episode notes where you can sign up, become part of the Patreon community and support the show that way. Keep it independent, keep it ad-free and ultimately keep it going. And another great way to support the show is, of course, to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And this is episode 161 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Adam Bloom. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Adam Bloom. How are you, mate? 
I'm very well, thank you, which is oh, ironic. Nice. <laughs> ironic, given the topic. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. Yeah, nice to be able to say that sometimes, though, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's nice to nice to say it and mean it. But um, yeah, we've just been having a little chat about your your book, mate, which I've I've got here and um I've been reading, and um it's probably the best place to kind of jump into this conversation because in the introduction you mentioned that you told your parents you wanted to be a comedian at the age of nine, and yeah. um I thought that was fascinating, really, because you know lots of us know what we want to do at nine, but very few of us say that thing and end up going to have like a whole career out of it. But what was it? As a what was it as a nine year old that you saw a comedy that sort of started that? Well, I, I was a funny kid. I mean, I remember at five years old we had a wet break and I I made everyone laugh um, when I momentarily stood in front of the class, and that felt great because people hadn't previously done anything funny. And when it, my opportunity came, I went, "I'm going for the gag," and the sound of a whole, you know, loud children's laughter was I'm amazing. I remember thinking, "Wow, this is great." And then, I, you know, I was a, I was a funny kid and I, I made my mum and her friend laugh with a kind of a structured, improvised, as in a, I, I thought of a joke on the spot about a situation. And I, and they both laughed and they gave each other a look as if to say, actually, that was quite good, rather than just a kid's joke. It had structure to it, like almost like a Tim Vine joke. And um, and I remember thinking, yeah, I know it, you know it. But of course, they didn't know it until I told them. But um, I mean, I, I assumed everyone wanted to be a comedian when they were a kid who became a comedian, but a lot of them fell into it through acting best, best man speeches. Um, when people came up to me after best man speech went, wow, that was amazing. Where can we see you gig? No, I actually don't do it. Um, that kind of thing happens. Um, or people whose friends told them they've, they've been their twenties and a friend says, you know what you should do stand up. There's a club near me. So I, I was surprised how few people actually did want to do it. Since I just assumed we were all class clowns, but not the case. And, um, yeah. you know, a lot of people, I mean, Harry Hill was a junior doctor. So he'd started five years studying being a doctor and then dropped it. Yeah. So he, he obviously wasn't playing on being a comedian when he started being a doctor, unless he had very low uh, self-esteem as a comedian and thought, I better get a career first. But five years is a lot of studying if you know what you want to do else outside of that, right? So, yeah, so it's it's a nice feeling. Um, and in the, in the book, because it's a very technical book, the reason I put a picture of me as a nine-year-old uh, on the uh, at the end of the introduction page was because I really wanted people to see that I was a funny kid. I wasn't this nerdy out scientific bloke who just worked it out but couldn't actually do it. You know, I have been doing it for thirty years and I've been full time for twenty eight years, so I'm not some bloke who's sussed out comedy. I actually do it. I wouldn't want to learn comedy by someone who doesn't do it or never did it. Mm. I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. right? And even though they can, they might understand it, I still rather hear it from someone who's doing it. Yeah, yeah, because I think you can understand things, but then there's also, there's a lot of like subtle nuance to doing something, right? Exactly. Particularly something with, it, to an audience, because there's a different energy there. Like it's, you know, things you could, I don't know, things that would be, you might say it to your mate and it would be funny. It's very different to saying it to like a room full of people that are there saying, I've paid money. And I demand to be made to laugh. Like that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also think there's only so far someone can go into an art form without doing it. Um, well, that's kind of what you were saying. But, but yeah, I think you know, um Kenneth Williams from the Carry On films, he said about critics, a critic is like a eunuch at an orgy. They know how it's done, but they can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's you know that's pretty much spot on, right? Yeah, it's well, great. Uh, great. Yeah, we'll, great we'll take that. Yeah. So, how did you go from the like nine year old Adam, you know, it, making friends laugh in in wet break to actually gigging and actually getting you know sitting down to write stuff? Well, I, I saw Emo Phillips on TV when I was nineteen and started writing jokes, and then when I was twenty two, nearly twenty three, I saw Harry Hill live, and that was it. I was like, got to do this. So. A couple of weeks later, I did my first gig. So this is all all thanks to Harry Hill, really. Yeah. I say this, I suppose when you're sort of following a, a passion, there's a lot to be said for like acting quickly, right? Because sort of, you know, seeing Harry Hill and thinking I've got to do this. And then two weeks later, um, because sometimes these things, I think, I don't know, they can get away from us a little bit, right? And we sort of, oh, I'll get around to it next month. I'll get around to it in six months. And we never quite push the button and go for it. Well, yeah, well, arguably, arguably it took me four years. I mean, no, arguably it took me uh, 14 years, right? Yeah, well, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Ross Noble did his first gig at 14 years old, so he didn't wait long from deciding he wanted to do it to doing it. But 
I mean, I would say four years because I was writing jokes and fantasizing about it. And then when I lost my job as a cocktail bartender and got dumped by my girlfriend in the same day, um, I they weren't connected, by the way. Um, I came home and went, wow, I'm at a rock bottom. And then I had this lightning flash thought went, be a comedian, be a comedian. That's what you wanted to do since you were nine. So it was such a, I mean, if this was a cartoon of this moment, it would be a bolt of lightning hitting me. It was such a powerful moment. And I just went, remember that thing that you said you were going to do as a kid? We'll do it. So that was amazing. When I, when I, read, when I looked back at that moment, I was in my bedroom standing up by the door and I just went, and I just, it, it hit me. It really was like a happy punch in the face. So, yeah. So if anyone was listening to this who's not doing what they want to do, you don't want to be on your deathbed wondering what what your life would have been like if you'd done it, right? Yeah, very much so. I always think, like, I can't remember who said it or where I heard it, but there's something like one of the worst places that we can be as humans is in, like, a low level of discomfort. You know, so if you've kind of got a job, and it's not really what you want to do, but it's not the worst thing in the world. And we can kind of sit in that for so long. And sometimes it takes losing your job and getting dumped on the same day to make you right. go, oh, fuck this, I'm going to go for it, right? I like the phrase low level of discomfort. I mean... This is about art and not about money, but obviously money is an important thing to have. And if you earn more money, then you'll be able to buy more things. Uh, I'd rather be happy with little money than sad with lots of money because, you know, if you're in a job you hate, coming home after a 60-hour week and be able to spend loads of money, having not enjoyed your 60 hours, is not a great... I'd rather be earning little money and love my job because you spend a lot of time traveling and working. But my dad once said to me, my dad was a jazz pianist, and my dad once said to me, don't be too busy earning a living to make any money. And it's the same thing as you're saying with getting out of a job that you're kind of, you're just hovering in this. Uh, it's not bad enough to finish it. I mean, people have relationships like that. I don't hate you, but I'm not excited by you. Well, we'll stay in this thing. Um, so my dad's phrase about don't be too busy earning a living to make any money is very similar to the low level because once you're, once you're busy in a job, you can't get out of that time frame to think of anything that's going to uh, uh, improve your lifestyle. I'm stuck. I'm paying my bills. You know, you've got a mortgage, you've got children. You've got to keep working. You go, oh, I'd like to take six months off and learn this. Well, you're not going to because you're too busy earning a living. So if your objective is to earn more money, you've got to find a way of learning how to make more money while you're in that situation, which is difficult. I mean, comedian friend of mine, Mike Dunn, he was a photocopy of a repairman and I went full time as a comedian and he didn't. We started at the same time. He was just as good as me. We lived in the same area. So we hung out a lot. And I said, Mike, it's, it's not moving for you. I said, you, you've got to leave your job. He said, well, I can't afford to. I said, well, go part time. And then you'll force yourself to. And it's probably the best advice I've given someone because he did. They had more time to get on the phone and ring around for gigs. This is pre-email. And he, he, he survived on the part time income. And, and, he, and he gave himself time to get more work. And subsequently, not only did he make more money as a comedian, he was also enjoying his life more. But, but you know, the part-time thing, you know, people make excuses. And uh, the, the excuses are, are semi-valid. You know, I've got a mortgage and children. You can't just give up a job to do open spots, you know, unpaid comedy. Of course you can't. But, you know you've got to come out of work and you've got to drive to that gig and you've got to do that gig. You've got to get home late at night and get up early. And the, the, the sacrifice, you know, no one who's hugely successful hasn't made sacrifices, right? Of course, you know, you want to spend time with your partner or your children. Of course you do. But if you're, not, if you're in that low level, I like, I really like that phrase because if you hate your job, you're going to leave it eventually, probably, or at least find a, a better one in the same industry. But yeah, low level, what was it? Low level discomfort, was it? Yeah, low level discomfort. Yeah, because we're so like we have that amount of resilience, don't we? And we can just sit in that place mm. just for forever. And yeah, it can it can sometimes take that. Yeah, we need need a push sometimes. So the universe has to give you a bit of a yeah. bit of a shove, and that's often when like bad something that at the time seems like a really bad situation ends up being. You look back and you think, oh, actually, I'm glad that happened. It was shit at the time, but you know, look at what it 
sort of yeah. pushed me into you know yeah, yeah definitely would it um would it be right in saying adam that you kind of found a, a decent amount of success quite early on you're still quite young when um when things start to take off for you is that right i'd, I'd say commercially my my most success happened in my first five years yeah i've been at 30 years um yeah i got on tv very quickly i got you know i toured i i had a universal dvd retainer deal at 28 years old um uh but but artistically i'm i'm more successful now you know i'm more respected comedian i i I have a, a book out and i have three radio four series under my belt uh these all ha- this all happened after the the the, the my meteoric rise started to fizzle out so but commercially yeah i i, I became quite successful quite young yeah mm. i mean t- t- 27 years old i was getting on regular television even you know four million viewer television so yeah i think i i was successful quite quickly if you if you go by how known you are yeah did that suit you adam like sort of getting to that you know doing those sorts of those sorts of things at, at that age did that work for you well, I, I liked earning lots of money and I liked having audiences coming to see me specifically. I wasn't mad on the being stopped in the street all the time and I wasn't mad on the deadlines. In fact, when the when the heat came off me, my mum said she'd breathe a sigh of relief because although she was happy for me, she could see I was struggling with the pressure of the deadlines. You know, being funny is great. When you've got two months to go to fill an Edinburgh show that's half an hour short and you're also making a TV pilot and your focus is on that. I mean, you know, that was overloading me. And, um, you know, that affects your mental health. And, and and my, you know, we I know we haven't moved on to the topic, but my my hypermania, which is low in bipolar, has been diagnosed by an expert as brought on by stress. So so my, my mindset is not, it, it, I'm more likely to hit some lows if I've been triggered by stress. Right. Well, I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's always the interesting thing, I think, with a diagnosis, because uh, often like treatment paths and possible solutions come with diagnosis. But obviously a mental illness doesn't start with diagnosis. So we have this long patch beforehand where we're experiencing these things and they're making us behave in a certain way or having these different experiences. And it's only when we get a name for it that we go, oh, yeah, kind of all that last however many like months, weeks, years, decades of, of chaos kind of right. makes sense. Yeah. Was that similar to you leading up to getting a diagnosis? I yeah. Think? I mean, I, I, I realized that my I would have meltdowns. Um, I mean, my I would get a temper when something really bothered me because I was I was explosive. So I would, you know, I would. I would go inside myself and then suddenly go boom because I couldn't take it anymore. So that doesn't really happen so much now. But also, I'm you know I'm, I'm older now. I'm 53 next week. Um, so I think something mellows with age as well. Yeah, yeah. I suppose we learn more about ourselves and how to manage ourselves and yeah, give you a get, shit about different things. Yeah, you get you get angry young men. You generally get grumpy old men. <laughs> you know, it's true, isn't it? Yeah. You don't yeah. get you, you get more angry young men than grumpy young men and you get far more grumpy old men than angry old men yeah so i think anger is something you you eventually you know you you, you process things better and you realize it doesn't matter you know and someone upsets you like well you know that person is an idiot i'll just avoid them whereas you know in my 20s i would i would freak out and let them know what i thought of them and you know maybe that's a good thing they can at least walk away and consider they might be that person but Generally, you don't. If someone loses their temper, you just that person's an idiot for losing their temper. Generally, when someone loses their temper, generally the stigma is attached to them. It's like, no, no, I've lost my temper because you're an idiot. But the stigma is attached to, you know, e- even if someone does something bad, if you lose your temper, the stigma is attached to you. And all focus goes off the person who's done something bad. So if you overreact to someone doing something bad, you're the bad guy. So wait a minute, can we rewind five minutes and remember what that person did? Yeah, do you know what I mean? There's something awful, and then you're like, well, "He just did that." You go, "Well, there's no need to raise your voice." You go, "Okay, can we can we go back to him now? Can I apologize for raising my voice, and we can focus on the bloke who's just done that?" Yeah, that's a, such a valid point, right? Because when we look at like emotions in general, like all emotions are valid and they're all there for a reason. But there is something, particularly with anger and anger as men and young men, that it's almost like a it's the one emotion that you're not supposed to feel. And you're not supposed to express. And you, you know, like you were saying, we we sort of, 
yeah, we're just told from a young age not to behave like that. But, oh. you know, anger's valid, right? It's, it's, the, it's signposting something. If you feel angry, something's, you know, your body's letting you know something. Well, there's such thing as good anger as well. And, um, you know, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was good anger. He was angry the way that black people were being treated. So he did a speech. He didn't shout, I have a dream. It's a very positive thing. But that dream was because he's angry with the way things are now. So that's yeah. good anger. You know, yeah. you, you, someone listens to this might go, he wasn't angry, he was philosophical. The, 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 the core of that speech was, things have to change. I'm not happy with this. The dream is a beautiful thing. Black and white children playing together. People being judged on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. This is all philosophical and logical. This, this is how it should be. Not philosophical, rational. But the actual, the, 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 there's anger within it because, like, of course he's angry. He's angry with the way people are looking down at pe people who look like him. How do you not be angry with that? But so good anger is, um, you know, anger can fuel it, it, when you have a sense of injustice anger fuels that sense of injustice and therefore you do something about it and if if the outcome is positive and you haven't shouted that's good anger mm. but as soon as you shout you seem to lose yeah i suppose these things often like stack up over time don't they right so you get the up maybe something's annoyed you or whatever and you get you don't take the opportunity to say something about it right and you bury that and then you bury it the next time and the next time and eventually all these things kind of like pile up and it starts coming out inappropriately it starts spilling out oh god that's why i have to say what i think i somebody wronged me once and i i very calmly explained it to them we were away on a trip so i had little choice but to be with them for two weeks and i very calmly explained what was wrong and i let it go and it it stayed in me like a like a herpes virus that I wasn't aware I had. And then one day he did the same thing, and it just went boom, and it poured out. And it, I suppose it was it was if I'd let it out properly in the first place, it wouldn't have been under there. I didn't know it was in me. I I suppressed it because I had two weeks with him, so I I thought well I, I'm not going to have an argument. So I very calmly said what was bothering me. But if I'd let it out in the first place, it wouldn't have been ten times worse two years later because. You know, I, I everyone's got a limit of when they're being pushed, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, no, it's, there's a lot to be said for vocalizing this stuff and to not bottle it up. I've been doing this thing at the moment, and like it might sound a little bit weird, but I have a lot of problems with anxiety, and a lot of that is like driven by uh, what people think of me and all these sorts of things. And I've been like going back through my life and thinking of times when i don't know like i really wanted to wear like a certain coat to school and i thought oh if i wear that then everyone's gonna like tease me and i didn't have the the bravery to like wear the coat well i've been like finding the coat that looks like that and buying it and like wearing it now as an adult you know like going back to those moments that felt where i made the decision let my mental health influence a decision and then trying to um you know trying to like write that wrong now almost you know right, okay and we can kind of we can do things like that i think with like that conversation you were just saying is like look back at those times we feel uncomfortable because we didn't say the thing and saying right i'll make sure i get the opportunity i'm gonna i'm gonna say the thing you know i'm gonna uh, be more vocal so it doesn't doesn't stack up you know i think it's right. worth a worthwhile lesson i think yeah 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 so what so where are we going with the uh the topic in question yeah well i suppose leading up to your um your diagnosis mate how did how did that how did that come about firstly to get the diagnosis of uh of bipolar well my my wife my ex the mother of my children she she sort of concluded it um about eight years ago and i i um went to a doctor she referred me to an expert and they said yeah we think you're bipolar but but low end and i i think it's very important to know that there are three stages there's manic there's sorry there's hyper er which means more than hypermanic there's manic which is the middle range and there's hypomanic and the trouble with hypo and hyper is they both sound like hyper but hypo means less than and i didn't know that at the time so i tell friends oh, i've been diagnosed as hyper hypomanic they go well you always were a bit hyper because they're hearing the word hyper but hypo is less than. They're too similar, aren't they? They're too mm. similar. So, um, and the hypermanic 
is very different to hypomanic because it's I'm number th- the lowest stage and they're the highest. Now I read that eight percent of people who are hypomanic commit suicide. Eight percent. That's a terrifying statistic. Mm. So to be in the third group on the lowest group is, I suppose, a blessing for want of a better word because eight percent is that's I mean that is terrifying. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Did it when they when that was put forward to you about about hypomanic, did the kind of the the reasons why did they make sense? Do they kind of, do that does that fit for you when yeah. yeah. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and it sounded the description of hypomania sounded like a good review of one of my Edinburgh shows. Really? Yeah. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It was bursts of energy flights of imagination i mean it's quite a creative mindset because you get these rushes and then your brain gets stimulated and you're like blah, 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 talkative you know I, I could talk for england and and um being talkative and having bursts of creativity that's not a bad byproduct of something i mean it's better than sitting in the dark room feeling sad right yeah yeah very much if you can like yeah if you can channel it into uh into something creative something yeah. you're passionate about yeah. i didn't have and i oh channel it as in to do stand up but the thing is you know stand up found me because i was that kid with bursts of creativity um so no it, it, it's great and the, the medication i'm on doesn't stop that either because imagine being on medication that stopped you being funny yeah 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 very much so is it like um where am I going with this? Do you feel a lot often with like hypermania, people get the the extreme highs and the and the and the mania, and then they also get the stream the extreme lows. You know, the big up and the big down. Do you get that as well? Does does it have that side to it? Yeah, but the thing is, I didn't. I don't know what it's like to be anybody else, and this is the problem. You know, this is uh, this goes along with also children who are in awful situations in their home life. They assume it's normal, so. It's not until they talk to other people, they realize that it's not normal. Well, in a similar sense, I can't know what it feels like to be someone else. So when I get low, I go, well, that's what being a human being is. You know, it's I can't know what you feel like when you get low. You could describe it to me in depth and I could go, yeah, that's not as bad as how I feel. Or I could meet someone who gets it worse than me. But when someone says, I've been feeling down today, does that mean they're just not as buzzy? They're not whistling when they walk down the street? They're down because they momentarily feel a little bit like, oh, the weather's bad or, oh, actually, we're all going to die. I suppose it's not really that much worth living. But but I don't know what my – I'll never know what my lows feel like compared to someone else's. Yeah. And that's the problem. The, 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 the comparison I make to someone who's got a bad home life is that at that moment, that's normal. It's tragic as that is, they can – if they find out it's not normal, they have a chance to escape it. Obviously, often the damage is done by then. But, the, but obviously, my, the point I'm making is that the, 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 there's only so many parallels between these two situations because you only know how you feel. And they, you know, it's like when people say, oh, when I see green, do you see the same green as me? And it's one of those stoned, two in the morning, had too much weed conversations, right? But, you know, I, I, I don't know what it feels like for, for someone else to be down. Mm. yeah i suppose i think the thing that's commonly associated with bipolar because like before it was bipolar it was called like manic depression right so there is yeah. that yeah so i suppose whereas some people like uh is a mild low rather than a you know existential like crash but yeah like you say i suppose it's difficult to um to gauge it it's all relative right to the person who's going through it it's all uh it's all relative to the yeah I, I don't like i don't like the word bipolar because what they've done is they've taken away the 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 seriousness of the, the phrase manic depressive says it all and um neither of those two things are good and when you like george carlin a brilliant comedian george carlin who who's dead now he's got a routine i urge listeners to look up about soft language i think on youtube the search would up maybe george carlin soft language or maybe shell shock but he did a routine about shell shock um, in the Vietnam War. They come home that something had snapped in their in their uh, nervous system, and they had shell shock. Now, shell shock 
two syllables. It's quite onomatopoeic, isn't it? Mm. It sounds like the effects of bullets, shell shock. And that became battle fatigue. And then it became post-traumatic stress disorder. And they were basically, um, they were taking away the, the, the scariness of the word. Um, I suppose post-traumatic, you know, that's got the word traumatic, but it's post-traumatic. It's not going for trauma, it's post. So it's hiding the word trauma. with it. And I'm, I'm in danger of wrongly quoting a routine now, but it's a beautiful routine about how, you know, you can soften language to, to hide the truth. So manic depressive, you know, if I turn around someone says, listen, I've been diagnosed, I've been to a psychiatric doctor, I've been diagnosed as manic depressive. Oh my God, my friend's depressed. We need to worry about him. I've got bipolar. It doesn't say anything. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a, a good point. It's like, I don't know, I think something that's come with awareness around mental health and mental illness spreading in the last couple of words, in the last couple of years, sorry, is that it has kind of took the edge off that, right? There are certain, when you have it, oh, like I was on the radio this morning, it's why I had to move our, our thing back an hour, our chat back an hour. I was on the radio and it was live and it was like, he really felt like I couldn't say strong word like suicide or you know like the the strong words in the conversation because mm. it's going to a wider audience so you feel like you need to be more palatable and I think sometimes we do things a disservice don't we by trying to make them more palatable for people yeah what word did you use um I would say I think I said something along I probably talked about being in crisis because it was live I can't quite remember what I said it was one I, of those where you say well, a lot of stuff sorry I didn't mean to interrupt no I got I got a soft word for suicidal Heaven curious. Heaven curious. Yeah, <laughs> that works very nicely. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, very, very interesting. I always think of like PTSD as well as having the disorder on the end. And when like, you know, going particularly from like, you know, trauma from a traumatic situation, is it a disorder or is it just a perfectly expected way to respond to seeing or being part of something that's absolutely horrendous and too much to deal with right. you know it's, it's like a, a maybe a, a normal way of thinking by seeing something awful rather than a disordered way of thinking but there you go that's uh <laughs> that's one of them one of them um, had you heard the word bipolar before your diagnosis adam did yes. you know much about it yeah no no i didn't know much about it i didn't know it was the extension of uh a, a rewording of manic depressive um i knew that it was people that had swings of their moods, um, which everyone does. This is the thing, you know, everyone gets sad, everyone gets happy, everyone gets excited. Um, you know, I, I don't even understand even where the label justifies itself because we're on a scale of everyone's a bit sad. Everyone. So it's like, what stage is someone bipolar or not just a little bit grumpy or a little bit up and down, you know? Everyone's up and down. I'm more up and down than most. Where's the line where it considered bipolar and just someone's a bit up and down? So, it, it, I mean, I don't know the answer to that one. Maybe I should look it up. But, you know, it's, I, I don't... At first, I kind of felt myself almost bragging about it, like I'd drop it in conversations with someone. almost made me feel special. I mean, ADHD, everyone's bragging their ADHD. You know, it's it's it's... No one's casually goes, I found out I've got ADHD. They're like, yep, um, I've got ADHD. It's almost like this badge, like this pride thing, which get, almost goes, yeah, that, that gives me license now. Uh, I take medication now and I can justify the last 30 years of my life for being a bit of a dick because now I've got this thing that I, I've now been cured of being a dick. And now I'm not a dick anymore. And um, I think that's quite a dickish thing to say because it kind of gives you free reign. You know, I'm, when my dad died last year, um, people were so nice to me. And I remember thinking, this isn't going to last forever. I better make the most of this. You can do anything. You can do anything wrong, right? You can do anything wrong. You can spill a glass of red wine on some sofa and then do it a second time. I go, oh, his, his dad just died, you know. Uh, but that doesn't last for six months. You'll soon be paying for the carpet, right? Yeah. But yes, yeah, free carpet for six months. So, um, so yeah, I felt like a little bit at first. I'd, 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 I'd announce it a lot. Um, and then I realized that I was kind of dining out on it like it made me special. And, it, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of it, but you shouldn't be bragging about it either. It's just how you are, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it doesn't define 
you or no. you know no. like yeah these labels these these names don't don't define anyone right and that's i always love sort of digging into this a little bit because like you say where do you draw that line between normal human emotions and you know what we we put a put a label to you know it is it's a fascinating thing to to talk about and you see it a lot online at the moment don't you like the sort of pathologizing of normal human emotions so you'll see these like are oh, the top five signs you've got high functioning anxiety and it'll list five things on instagram or tiktok and it'll list five things that you think well like, everybody does that right, right. So, you could, so you could see it and go oh maybe i have got adhd for example and the, the things that are listed are stuff that just everybody does you know so it it, it, it seems to be social media as i think have spread a lot of that yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how many people have been wrongly diagnosed as um, having ADHD. Like maybe in two years' time, people go, actually, my doctor says it was actually anxiety and I did, did this instead because I, I, I just can't credit that everyone's suddenly got it. I, it feels like more people have got it than haven't got it. Yeah, well, I mean, if it, if we're you know talking about like a neurodiversity, I think the whole point is the diversity bit, right? Which which is everyone. If everyone's got the same thing, then it's not very diverse. It's actually like round yeah, the point. other way. Yeah, more people have got. Yeah, I've actually been diagnosed as not having ADHD, <laughs> and now everyone's got it. And I'm like, do you have heard about Adam? He hasn't got ADHD. Really, I I would never have noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly um. It's certainly a tricky one, isn't it? And like you say, it's a it's a, a big topic of of conversation at the moment. But I think either way, we still have to kind of like you alluded to there, mate. We still have to take it's our own responsibility to sort sort our shit out, right? And if you are being a dick or if you are behaving in a certain way, then it doesn't really matter what you're diagnosed with or not. Then it is, you know, is a, a reason, but not an excuse. I suppose is is what I'm trying to say. No, but medication, you know. I'm on mood stabilizers. I'm not on antidepressants and I never have been. But what what's interesting about mood stabilizers is I don't feel any different on them, but apparently my absolute highest and my absolute lowest won't go there. Like they've got, you know, like a car having a speed limit on it for a 17 year old driver has got that, <laughs> that little attachment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got like, you know, I feel like I've got a speed uh attachment and i've got a reverse I, i'm only allowed to reverse so far as fast as well but um so so for me it's not that different i just know i've got to keep taking my pills yeah yeah do there is there any um like did you find the medication did it work from the start some people have to try no, different ones no 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 like they, they experimented several combinations i must have gone through three or four different things and combinations of the three or four. It was like color. It was like an interior designer color scheming curtains and a and a wall, just getting little sample pots and going no 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 no. Try a different one. Um, it really it really felt like that. And then you know we communicated and and, and then we felt like we got to the right one. Yeah. Do you have to like keep an eye on it, Adam? Do you have to? Um, you know, I've spoke to some people who have bipolar and they can sort of almost feel it ramping up a little bit, and then maybe have to say, "All oh, right, maybe I need to check in with how much I'm sleeping or how much I'm." Uh, you know, do you feel the shift, or is it just like a constant, you know, up and down? No, it's, it, I, I don't feel any any noticeable changes. I my doctor rang me up and said we're thinking of lowering your dosage of one of the two things by a third, and I said, "Well." I have a really good night's sleep every night because of that pill because it it kind of doesn't knock you out but it 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 makes you tired in half an hour like you want to you want to get to bed in half an hour I would never ever drive w on it I would never pop a pill and drive and go oh it's only thirty minutes drive oh a bit of traffic okay it'll be forty five I wouldn't dream of being in the car half an hour into that uh, that uh, pill kicking in um, so um, I said to her. Look, I get a good night's sleep every night, and I know that's part of it. And she said, "Well, I wish I could get a good night's sleep every night." She said, "Okay, we'll we'll leave it as it is." So I actually haggled up because, <laughs> yeah, they just decided we will lower your doses. I was like, "No, please don't." I sleep really well, but I have a blood tests every now and again. I got one next week actually, just to check that you know it's not having any effect on my blood. Yeah. You mentioned before that it can be um, to have those like creative bursts of energy, that it can be quite useful to kind of, you know, to have that, um, you know, just that that sort of undercurrent of creative energy. Was that useful when it came to writing your book? Was that uh, were you sort of able to ride that wave a bit? Well, that, that was not the same kind of creativity because that wasn't imaginative. That was descriptive. That was me going right inside my head and putting into words something I've never said. 
Um, so that wasn't really the same. Um, that was being able to articulate something rather than being creative. I don't think I was being creative around that book. I was being very much in tune with very deep thoughts that I've never shared before. So um, the, 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 because I've written for a lot of people, I've written for a, a hell of a lot of people, um, I learned during the meetings to explain why I did something a certain way with their material. And they'd go, why did you change it to that? And I'd go right into my thoughts. I'd go, well, if a punchline's got a pause in the middle, it doesn't feel right if there's the same amount of syllables on either side of that pause. It needs to be one heavier on one side than the other, which is what I call the seesaw theory. And um, when I learned to explain things, I eventually realized that I had a very unusual position in comedy because I was articulating intricate thoughts. And once I learned to do that, I thought, well, that's half the book already written because I'll be writing down things I've said over the last 20 years of writing for people. Then the rest of it was going deeper in myself and being able to articulate things that I hadn't ever discussed. And then I found out that some of those things were new to all comedians who read them. I mean, can you imagine how exciting that was when not one comedian went, yeah, I've done that. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible, right? And then yeah. these these are all part the things that have been just part of your process for all for all these years. Yeah. But mm. I mean I yeah, well the, I, I, there there are plenty of things I described that other comedians do, but they'd never describe them. So they would write to me and go, You've given a word for something that I've been doing for years but never thought about. But that's really great because you can you can then say that joke needs a word smuggle. It you could condense a very long paragraph to a friend into a code that lets them know the paragraph you're talking about. So I brought a lot to the surface, but but, but to answer your question, I don't think I was having those. I mean, maybe the same wave of energy was. Put, I mean, I remember sitting down and writing three pages in one go, just nonstop. Bah, 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 bah. That is not normal for me. I do not write three pages in one go. Sometimes it's a paragraph here and a paragraph there. So when that came out of me, yeah, maybe it was the same burst, but it wasn't a burst of being creative. It was a burst, burst, burst of being able to be descriptive. But maybe that's a similar thing. I, this is, I'm now questioning it. A burst of something, a rush, you know, that little upper that kicks into you and goes, yeah, I feel alive right now. Um, you've got to feel alive to write a book. I mean, good luck writing a book if you're tired or hungover because it's going to take a lot longer, right? Yeah, yeah, I can well imagine. Yeah, very much so. Is it, do you always plan to write a book, Adam? Is that something that was always on a to-do list? No. A, a friend of mine called A.D. Lloyd, who's a magician and an actor, he said to me, you know, you've got to write a book. You're a walking book. And I made excuses, like we are talking about people make excuses earlier. Well, it's a niche market and an advanced book wouldn't be reaching everybody because the beginners wouldn't read it. And then I eventually realised after he nagged me and nagged me that it would be a good news resolution. So New Year's Day, I sat down and I started it, which was the best thing I've done in years because eight months later it was on Amazon. Um, but uh, we've gone off the subject. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, go go wherever, wherever you like. Yeah, well, well um, I, I, I was the guy making excuses because there is a market globally because if you can buy an Amazon book in most countries in the world and it's aimed at, predominantly people that already do it. There are a lot of people globally who already do it. I mean, I don't mean full-time. Let's say there's 400 full-time communities in England, but there's 5,000 people who are doing it as a, 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 on the new level, you know, open micers. And then there was another 5,000 who were thinking of doing it. So I made the book palatable for them. So it was very difficult to write an advanced book that everyone would understand. That's quite a task because I was terrified of getting bad reviews from new comedians going, it was way too advanced. He should have made that clearer. Um, but they didn't. They they, they actually, the, the people in their first year were the ones who liked it the most. Mm. So w when I got the reviews in, I can't tell you how good it is to get reviews dripping in one or two a day from day one, maybe day four, I think. And then realizing from their descriptions that you've achieved exactly what you wanted to achieve. I, I mean, that's one of the biggest highs in my life. And you'd be walking down the street. You know, I think I'll check Amazon, click, oh, one more review. Oh, yeah, it's five. 
they said this. And when they say the things that you would dream that they'd say, I mean, the, the analogy I've used is if you wrote a film, a screenplay, and you're in the cinema watching other people around you, if they all cried at the same right moments and they all laughed at the right moments, you get an incredible feeling. You can't know that's going to happen. You can hope it's going to happen. You can't know who's going to cry when. How can you possibly know that? You know, you're trying to get a message across. But no one no, no one sets out to make a bad film, but I've seen plenty of bad films. Yeah, I suppose that's... It's part of what the book's doing with comedy, right? You know, people are trying to, they, people who are writing comedy want to make people laugh, you know, and, they, you know, it gives them the, some of the, the structure and the ideas how to be able to produce that laugh, you know? So it's kind of like a little, little crossover there as well. But um, was that interesting kind of like trying to find words for these things? Like you said, you had to take a deep dive into your own, into your own mind to, to find the words. And that kind of fascinates me of like describing, describing things that, we just take for granted that we do like, I think you use the analogy in the book of a, of a like tying a shoelace, right. And we'll mm. tie a shoelace. And it, that, that must've been like a, you know, quite a, an interesting project. So much more than just sitting down and writing a book. Right. Yeah. So, if, so my point, as you know, was that if I asked you to describe how to tie a shoelace over the phone to somebody, but you weren't allowed to hold a shoelace in your hands, that'd be really hard. Cause you'd have to think it through and verbalize it without being able to hold it as you verbalized it. I don't think I could do it. There's two bits, the one on the left, make upwards and bring it down, then put your finger and thumb over it so you're holding it, then pick up the other one. I mean, you you, you could do it, but I think it will take a good few mistakes before they got you. And it wouldn't be their fault. It'd be your fault. You know, if they get it wrong, you failed. You know, assuming they're of a certain amount of level of intelligence, but the, the pressure's on you. You know, I, I remember my school teacher teaching us decimal points. So we'd be doing fractions, at, you know, maybe eight, nine years old in the mid seventies. And we were doing, we'd done fractions, two thirds. That's what you write, th three quarters. And then suddenly we introduced decimal points. So three quarters would be 0.75. And we couldn't get it. The whole class didn't get it. We we're staring at her blankly and she got frustrated. And I remember thinking, no, 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 no. We are all listening. There are plenty of clever kids in this class. In fact, there's three or four who are extremely bright. You're not describing it properly. We're not feigning. You are. You know, the class are distracted. And they're not bothering to... But we were giving our full attention. She was explaining decimal points to nine-year-olds. It's her job to make sure we understood it. And I remember her getting frustrated. I thought, you're, you're, frust you're being frustrated with the wrong person here. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's the actual role of a teacher, right? Is to communicate yes. the uh, the thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that must have been like a yeah, fascinating for yourself to try and like break this stuff down. And did you learn stuff about your own process along the way? Was there anything yes. you were like, oh, I didn't know I did that? Or yes, I did, and um, and I certainly didn't make a point of admitting it either. <laughs> <laughs> I would go. There's four things you have to do to make this rhythm work. But when I started writing it, there were three things. And I had a revelation and went, I've just discovered something else. Because by staring at something specifically, you're obviously more likely to think about it more and have a thought about it. That was great. I mean, and I, I, I would say, I did remember saying the first two of these may seem quite obvious and possibly the third, but discovering the false was a revelation. But I didn't say, I only sit down to write three because I think, wait a minute, this guy, this guy can only write a book now. That means, he, that means eight months ago, he wasn't good enough to write a book. But of course, you know, the book would have just had occasionally fewer points. But there were a few equal equals MC squared moments that I had uh, prior to writing the book and a couple I had whilst writing the book. But it was extremely exciting realising you could articulate the, the, the only way to make a re repetition of a keyword in a punchline land well so right. generally speaking on the punchline the final word of the punchline should be a new word and if it's a word you've repeated in the punchline there are patterns that will make it work and patterns if you don't follow those patterns they won't work and i proved it by adding two words in between the keyword and the pause um I, and i said at one point i said you might be thinking is comedy really about maths 
And I said, no, it's about music. And I worked out some of the chords. I mean, you learn chords when you learn a guitar. And you work out patterns for yourself when you do comedy. But if you're not working them out and someone shows you a pattern, you can refer to the pattern and go, oh, let me try it that way. Isn't yeah. it beautiful to think that it will work if you got it nearly right, but it sounds wrong, but you don't know why. You don't know why. My shoelaces are coming undone, and I don't know why. You refer to the, the manual. You see the loop. I was doing it too low. I, was, you know, I, was, I wasn't tying it around properly. And um, I get emails from all around the world, people saying that I reworded this punchline. They show me before and afters. I mean, I wake up every day to a, 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 a private message on Instagram or an email from, from my, because my email address is in the book, someone saying, this, this is working better now. It, 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 it's so rewarding. Just someone on the other side of the world. They, they show me before and afters. Yeah. Of, of the bit and I always I always forward them to my mum or screen grab them and show my mum because you know my mum's obviously proud that her son's written a book but I, I can't tell you the job satisfaction I'm getting when someone in Australia shows me a joke that's working that wasn't working before yeah no that's a really a really beautiful thing uh, to kind of yeah study this this craft and and to put it out there in that way and then have people get so much much from it yeah it's a really uh really lovely thing it, it was uh something i did want to ask you about that I, I can't remember how you phrased it adam i heard you talking about it elsewhere and you're talking about like success in comedy and how some people would see you know the stadiums and the mainstream telly and stuff as the as the success but your version of it was much more like loving the craft and understanding the craft and being known as someone who technically the get the craft you were talking along those sorts of the lines and i suppose that's what i was thinking of when you were talking then about the pleasure that you get from people using the using the book um am i kind of on the right track am i reminding yeah, you of yeah. something <laughs> well the thing is you know there are comedians comedians and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name a stadium filling comedian who's not a comedian's comedian but you know sean Locke was a real comedian's comedian Stuart lears daniel kitson um the there are there are there's one stadium filling comedian who had zero respect from their peers. And the chance of them getting a five-star review in The Guardian is nil. But they don't care because they're making a fortune and they're making their audience laugh. But a comedian's comedian is somebody who's approaching things from a unique perspective. And when they are their jokes and punchlines don't remind you of anything else. Harry Hill's a comedian's comedian. Don't think of TV Burp. If you've only seen TV Burp, look at his stand-up. Um, Harry Hill's achieved greatness because he's a comedian's comedian who's reached the mainstream, which is almost unheard of. I mean, Sean Locke did it, but Sean Locke wasn't as well known as Harry Hill. TV Burp was like, like 5 million viewers at the time. But mm. so I, I suppose... Having the respect of my peers is important because I didn't just want to be a comedian. I wanted to be a, a comedian that comedians liked. And when when comedians are at the back of them laughing at you, that means more to me because it means you're not you're not you can fool the public with patterns that are just when I say patterns, I don't mean like the bookending of the keyword. That's about rhythm. I'm talking about the seed of the idea. You can watch a comedian and I can go, yeah, I can tell where you're going with this. You're going to do that, then you're going to do that. Like Columbo, I'm going to be two punchlines ahead. Now, a comedian's comedian will never allow you to be two punchlines ahead because they're coming out of their own patterns. And um, so to measure success by wealth is very dangerous because, I mean, also by that logic, Jerry Seinsford's worth a billion and Chris Rock's worth a couple of hundred million. So is Chris Rock not successful if you look at Jerry Seinfeld's wealth? You know, yeah. Rowan Atkinson's worth a hundred thousand, uh, sorry, a hundred million, and Jerry Seinfeld's worth a billion. So is Mr. Bean a tenth as good as Seinfeld? And it, it, you know, I, if you look at the the wealth of of, of comedians' estimated wealth, which I've only seen because of articles I've been shown by other people, um, you go, okay, well, he's ten times richer than him. So does that mean he's not good? 
where's your bar? I, I don't like the phrase, I hope you make it, or I've made it. Someone said to me, oh, she's changed since she made it. I thought, what does she make? Hmm. Do you mean since she got on television regularly? So before she got on television, did she not make it? When she was selling out small theatres on the back of reviews, did she had she not made it then? I mean, the, the phrase made it is ludicrous. Because if you've made it by being on television, but you can only sell out a thousand seaters and there's people in stadiums, they would say, You haven't made it, you're not in a stadium. Where's the line? We're back to where's bipolar, where it's just a bit up and down. So I I I I detest the phrase made it. If you want to be a comedian and you are making a living doing comedian, then you've made it in your own eyes by doing the thing you love for a living. If you're earning a fortune and you don't like your own work, you know deep down it's below you, but you're pandering to the masses, then I don't think you've made it because you're earning wealth that's that's greater than the artistic satisfaction you're getting when you come home from the show. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I love this idea of like just put having... Some light on. Oh, sorry, can you... Uh, uh, I, I want to put some light on because... But can you... Do you want to cut to that line again? Sorry. No, no, it's fine, mate. No, we're, we're, we're good. We're good. We're good. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, this idea of kind of having, you know, having this thing that you'd love to do and being able to do it for the love of it, right? That is just, that's just such a nice way to live. That's, you know, that's what I, how I want my work to be and the things that I do is the fact that I get to do them and that's my job. And that's like, you know, finding the the con- satisfaction and the contentment in that is just a, it's a really beautiful way to live. I think it's, um, it's good. It's good for us mentally, I think. Well, there's, I do close up magic as a hobby and I have no desire to be a professional magician. I love doing it as a hobby. And um, apparently a lot of professional magicians make, make fun of amateurs. Uh, because they know they're not making any money out of it. And John Lenehan, who's a comedian and a magician, he pointed out the word amateur comes from the French amour, which is to love. You're doing something because you love it. What a lovely way to be doing close-up magic. Not because yeah. you're sticking on a suit and going out to do another wedding that you're getting sick of these drunk people at weddings. You're you're doing it because you love it, which is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's nice to have those things in our in our lives, isn't it? It's good for our mental health. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Oh, mate. It was so lovely to chat today, mate. Thank you so That's much flown. for uh, coming oh on. God. It has. Yeah, oh, oh my God, it's flown. I know, yeah, it just disappeared. That hour disappeared. But yeah, it was uh, it was lovely. Like as I mentioned, I think we weren't recording when I said it, but I really loved it hearing comedians talk about the mechanics of comedy, this thing that where like so much work goes into making it sound like no work has gone into it. It's like a really fascinating, uh, fascinating thing for me. So yeah, it was lovely to, um, lovely oh, to pleasure. talk about it. I, and, I'll uh, just say one thing on that. Mm. One joke of mine took seven versions to nail it. Really? Seven yeah. Ver- yeah. Seven versions. Yeah. And that it, was... it... Sorry, mate, go on. Well, if you watch Jerry Seinfeld documentary called Comedian, He's going around the clubs in New York trying out material, and one joke gets complete silence. The biggest comedian in the world, in the city that the biggest sitcom in the world was set in, got silenced to a brand new joke. And an English girl in the audience went, Is this your first time? <laughs> Crikey. So, yeah, it goes to show, right? It goes mm. to show. Craft, yeah. craft, craft, and graft. Craft and graft, mate. It's beautiful. But yeah, thank you for your time today, mate. It was lovely to meet you. And, thank you uh, so yeah, much for having me. Good, good luck with everything. Cheers, mate. That was great. Oh, mate, yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. It was, yeah, it was really cool. Really no, cool. appreciate to, it. Really cool to uh, to chat. Where do you live? Um, I live uh, near Liverpool. I'm on the Wirral. So oh, so, okay. Well, if I'm ever nearby, I'll let you know. I the, the, I love um, top uh, hot water, but it's just a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's always interesting watching uh like comedy in Liverpool, you know, because the like, I don't think it's an easy crowd, the Scouse crowd, you know. Well, they all uh, think they're comedians, don't they? They, they definitely think they're brilliant. Think they do. They <laughs> yeah. do think they're comedians. But I will, I will invite you when I'm up. Um, oh, amazing. Where, where are you from, though? Originally, well, I'm from Wales originally, um, but I lived in a lot of places growing up, which is why I've got such a, a funny accent. Yeah, um, I can't place you. Yeah, no, I've li- you, you know, I was actually weird. I say I'm Welsh, but I was actually born in Scotland, and I grew up in South Africa, and it really all over wow. the place. So where I'm in South Africa? 
Uh, Johannesburg. Yeah, just oh. outside Johannesburg. Yeah, it was when oh. I was a little kid. So I went to school there and then um, spent some time in East Anglia, like in Lower Stoff near Norwich and uh, yeah, just all, all over. So yeah, I've got this really weird accent. It's like a mixture of everything and no one can ever place me. But Yeah, um, I, I, I wouldn't call it weird myself, but I'd certainly say we couldn't place you. Yeah, well, no, I, I appreciate that. I call it, I call it weird, but um, you know, there you go. But um, I'm glad yeah. you're back on. I'm glad you're back on top of life. Oh, thank you, mate. Yeah, it's been, you know, is it a lot of weirdly a lot of good things have come from it. You know, a lot of uh, like, you know, like this this podcast and chatting to all these people, and it's just, um, yeah, it really interests me hearing you talk about hypomania on on Rich Wilson's podcast, just because it kind of that that underlying energy of creativity and you know i've days when like i don't stop talking and it has been suggested before i think i put that in my message that um i've never been down the official diagnosis routes i don't feel like i need to at the moment but um yeah there was a lot there and then i googled it and did some reading afterwards i was like bloody hell i showed my wife i was like that sounds a bit close to home doesn't it what does what does uh, like hypo yeah yeah that kind of it makes a lot of sense to me i kind of uh that the the underlying energy that wants to kind of like burst forth and start and forever starting projects and uh you know hustling and yeah so uh yeah i kind of i was interested to and uh, do you know what i've spoke to like nearly 160 people i've had loads of people on who have um got bipolar and stuff no one's ever mentioned i've never heard it mentioned until i heard you mention it it's just not a not heard it oh, at all you so. never heard it on what uh, i've never heard anyone talk about hypomania rather than hyper like it's oh, never really? come up on this show before. I've had loads of people on who have, um, who've got bipolar and stuff, but it's never come up before. Yeah. Oh, and how many, what episode is this then? Oh, this will be like hundred and, I don't know, somewhere around 160 at one five seven came out oh, today. Wow. So wow. Um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank Can you, you let me know when this is out? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll drop you a message and, and let you know. It'll be in the next sort of two or three, two or three, maybe just this side of Christmas or maybe one of the early ones in the new year, but I'll That's try and great. get it out this year. That's great. Uh, Thank you, Doc. Thank you for having me. It's lovely oh, meeting mate. you. Yeah. Lovely. Take care, mate. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello. Bye-bye. A big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>